I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Rich Text, a podcast about our cultural obsessions, like questions about motherhood and non-motherhood from you, our listeners. If you're listening today, you're already a paid subscriber to our audio and written newsletter, Rich Text. Thank you, as always, for being here. You quite literally make our work possible. We're here today because back in April, we solicited questions on this topic on Instagram, and you all really delivered. You delivered so much that we like didn't even know where to begin, but Emma <laughs> did an amazing job gathering some of our favorites, going through all the wonderful questions you all sent in, and we're going to answer as many as we can today, and whatever we don't get to, we'll get to soon. Like We're happy to keep talking about this as long as people will listen. Yeah, we'll do a part two. We'll do a part we'll do three. That. We'll do whatever it takes. We just wanted to offer a quick trigger warning before we get into the meat of today's podcast because we will be discussing pregnancy and having children, our own personal experiences with those topics. We know that these are really difficult topics for many people. So if you're struggling with infertility or you have suffered a miscarriage or you have lost children, we know that questions around pregnancy and, quote, choosing to have children can be particularly painful. So if this is the case for you, this might be a good episode to skip. And as always, we want you to take care of your mental health first and foremost. Absolutely. And on that note, I think we need to dive in because we have so many things to discuss. So many things to discuss. Some of these questions, obviously, I think Claire (laughs) will be taking the lead on because they are questions about the experience of parenthood. And that is not an experience I've had. So we will just kind of go through and we've kind of sorted these into subcategories. We'll start with planning for parenthood, deciding to become a parent, those sort of questions. Our first question is, did you always want to be a mom or did it develop? I guess this is for me. I think I always wanted to be a mom. I don't like remember a time when I didn't want to. I remember a time when I was really, really afraid of giving birth and being like eight years old and telling my parents that I was going to adopt so that I wouldn't have to give birth, which is a totally valid path. But I think as I grew into adulthood, I came to feel that I was willing to accept the rigors of pregnancy and childbirth if if I should be so lucky as to experience them. And so by the time I was I was in my 20s, I, I think I was I was quite sure that I wanted to have my own kids. I mean, I remember even when when you were dating and stuff, talking about how that was a big yeah. a big point in in your dating. You were very intentional about it, and you were very open about that desire with your partners, even when you were in your like early to mid twenties dating. Yeah, I don't know if it's partly because I come from a more conservative background, like I grew up in a super Catholic town. And people like everyone just kind of had kids like I didn't really have adults in my life who didn't have kids. But even when I got older, and I was exposed to different kind of life paths, I still felt really sure about that. And I can't remember a time when I ever seriously questioned it. I am curious, like if you feel, Emma, that your perspective on that has changed over time, or if it's been kind of like a steady state of ambivalence. No, it's definitely changed. 
which is interesting. I think I always just assumed I would be a, a mom and I assumed I would have kids. It like wasn't something that I questioned growing up. And I just sort of assumed that that desire would like click on. It's not something I thought about whether I had a desire for it or not. I was just like, yeah, this is the thing I'm going to do because that's what you do. And it didn't sound bad to me. I was just like, yeah. And then I think as I got older, the more ambivalent I became. And that was a really unsettling feeling in a lot of ways. Yeah. To sort of clock in and be like, I don't have this life altering pull to this experience, but I also don't have a life altering pull to not have this experience. So it just leaves you in a place of of a little bit of confusion, which is kind of where what I'm where I still am at and and what I'm still grappling with. Yeah. I think that when you're young often it's you just you you know that you'll be in such a different mental place by the time you make that decision that you you can like assume how you'll feel when you get there and then you get there and you're like I don't know do, do I actually want to do that thing that I just assumed I would want to do especially when it becomes real and you sort of get a good hard look at what it entails and you see all of the limitations of the society that you live in and so it just like yeah it's easier to assume that you will make a decision sometime in the future and then versus actually making a decision and changing the way you live your life in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually very afraid always that I would overthink it and talk myself out of it, I think, because I, you know, it's hard having kids like it's scary. And there's lots of other great things you can do with your time if you don't have kids. And I think some part of me was like, if I leave it too long, if I think too hard about it, like, maybe I'll confuse myself. (laughs) I should just like make a plan and stick to it. And yeah, it's just interesting. There's so many different ways that you can handle like that impending conflict. And I think that I just wanted to like take away options from myself. Only shopped at one place for my wedding dress. I was like, too many options will make my brain explode. Yeah, it's called The Paradox of Choice. Great book. Look it up. So next question. I think this is quite related. How do you decide when you're ready to have a child, either with or without a partner? And we got a lot of questions that were in this vein. We got a comment from a listener saying, the first six months to a year of having a baby seems so hard. Does this mean I'm not ready or is that something I just have to accept? Another listener wrote, I'm 37, happily uncoupled, still unsure about kids. How does one decide? I'm afraid to have regret. So it's like, this is the big question, right? Like, how do you know when it's time to make a leap? How do you make a decision when you haven't had the experience? And and I think that there aren't any good or clear answers to that in my mind. Yeah, I think that there are some things that you can decide for yourself about what it will mean to be ready. For example, do you want to make sure that you do it with a partner? Or are you interested in doing it by yourself? Like if you want to do it with a partner and you're not in that partnership, maybe you want to wait. Like, yeah. do you want to have a certain standard of financial stability? That's something that you can decide. I think that that answer can be different for everyone. And there's no there's no way, I think, to be ready to have children in a broader sense. Parents are created by having children, mm-hmm. not by like hitting some benchmark of I love that. qualifications in advance. I certainly had no idea what I was doing. I think the, the first six months to a year is incredibly hard 
I think it's just always, always going to be very hard. I mean, every baby is different. Some babies are easier than others. Mine was, I don't think, super easy. But I think that the the difficulty of that first six months to a year is part of the experience of having kids. I, I thought of it as boot camp. I was like, this is breaking me into parenthood. It's sleep deprivation, it's exhaustion, it's constantly making decisions that you don't feel qualified to make, it's anxiety, it's like physical torture (laughs) in some cases, especially if you're like breastfeeding. But that is the, the process of caring for a baby is what bonds you with the baby. It's what makes you an expert in parenthood. And so I would say that is something you have to accept and maybe you're ready when when you're ready to accept that it's going to be really, really hard for six months to a year. It's actually much longer. Sorry. And also, I think the fear is never something that's going to go away. Once you've made the decision, either way, you stick to it and you commit to it. But like, I don't think that that means that you're not allowed to have negative feelings either way if you make a decision, right? And this, this question really reminded me of the column that Cheryl Strayed wrote in 2011, the ghost ship that didn't carry us where someone writes into her column dear sugar and asks for advice specifically about this it's a a 40 year old man who is partnered with a 40 year old woman and they do not know if they want to have kids and they don't know how to decide and they don't know how to sort through what that would mean I highly recommend reading reading the column it's so good I think I recommended it in the newsletter a few weeks back but She writes about her own experience and she says, I too had spent my adult years assuming that someday when it came to becoming a mother, I just know. I too placed myself on the leave me the fuck alone end of the grand gradient of the human condition. I decided to become pregnant when I did because I was nearing the final years of my fertility and because my desire to do this thing that everyone said was so profound was just barely stronger than my doubts about it were. So I got knocked up with a total lack of clarity. And it's just so good. She writes later, my point is not that you should have a baby undecided. It's that possibly you expect to have a feeling about wanting to have a baby that will never come. And so the clear desire for a baby isn't an accurate gauge for when you're trying to decide whether or not you should have one. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And I think that that is such an interesting take and one that I certainly need to hear is that like at a certain point you just have to make choices in your life and those choices don't need to be clear they just need to be made and either way you have to look at it as much of like there are two divergent paths and both of them are beautiful yeah I love that yeah I think the question of we often tell women especially oh if you don't have kids you'll regret it but you can also have kids and regret it. So a generalized fear of regret is not, I think, a reason to have kids. You have to, you do have to make that way the the two urges you're having towards the two different lives and be like, is one edging the other out? And can I just make this even decision? ever so slightly, even ever yeah. so slightly. And, and then, you know, you will have the life that you have, and it will have its own beauties and its own regrets. And, I'm never going to look back on a life that was like unencumbered by the duties of child rearing, you know, that's, that's also a loss, like it, every life has possible other lives, which is one of the points of that beautiful column. column. Oh, yeah, at a certain point. 
you just kind of have to go with your gut. And if your gut doesn't tell you one way or the other that clearly, you just have to kind of make a calculus and leap and accept that, that yeah, there's going to be great things and there's going to be yeah. things that are not so great. And you none of us get to have a life that's all one or all the other. Yeah. So next question, how do you deal with being scared to bring kids into the world for reasons like gun violence and climate change? So we're this starting is another, off easy. Yeah, starting off really, <laughs> really again. easy. Oh, this God. is definitely a question that we've thought about a lot and also that we got a lot of different versions of when we put out our call for good reason. It's something that as a person who is weighing whether to have children, it's something I think about a lot. And it is a big reason that I have concerns about bringing kids into the world. I'm like, if I'm not dying to have a child, is it right to like bring new humans in the world that might experience devastating pain because we don't live in a culture that takes care of each other? We don't live in a culture of mutuality. And I think this is one of those things that it's like, yeah, it's smart to weigh it. And you're allowed to feel that it pushes you over the edge one way or the other. And you're also allowed to have a deep desire to become a parent and to to have that experience and accept that the world is a very scary place in which we can't control everything around us all the time. And we have to forge ahead anyway. Yeah. I, I always struggle with this because I feel guilty a lot. Like I, yeah. I, I knew about I knew about how scary the world was. I think that like a, a few months before I think Max was conceived, I want to say, we were in the middle of trying to have kids and that like big 2018 climate change report came out that was like, we're all fucked. Like we're definitely all fucked now. We know it for sure. Mm-hmm. And I remember like looking at Greg and we were like, so... Have we made a grave error? <laughs> I mean, it's not too late for us to stop, but like... We knew we weren't going to stop trying. And there is a lot of self-doubt and guilt that goes along with that. Like you love your children more than than anything. And you don't want to think you brought them in the world just to experience suffering and dystopia. I also think that so I think one way that I deal with it is just by by putting it out of my mind and being like that. It's a decision that we've we've made and it's unfortunate about all the climate change and gun violence, but we're just going to have to like focus on our kids and do the best we can. I also think that humanity is going to continue to exist. And a lot of the people who are going to suffer the most from climate change are people who have a lot less privilege in terms of family planning than we do. Like the, the world and the state that it's in, there are a lot of people who are still being born every day who are going to suffer a lot if if it continues unchecked. And so one thing I always hope to do and try to push myself to do with mixed success is to think of it as like having an investment in the future of the world mm. and saying, you know, the world's going to continue to exist. Humanity continues to exist. Is it really my my role to say, like, I'm just going to have ride out my life while the ship burns around me because, like, what's it to me? Not that I would say that it's irresponsible or selfish to not have kids because of climate change. But I think that for me, there's something that resonates about 
thinking of investing in the future of humanity as, as a very personal thing and saying, like, I did have these kids. They are going to be part of the future of the world. I want them to be able to have kids. I want them to be able to have full lives. And that should be motivation for me to try to make, make the world better. better. Yeah, yeah. To, to try to be part of of solving these issues or no, mitigating I- them. Yeah, I see that. And I don't think what you're trying to say is like that you're using that as like a judgment no. on other people's choices at all. <laughs> but at like all. I think we all have to get our heads around the choices that we do make and figure out ways that with the life we create, how do we make the world better? How do we enact as little harm as as possible? I don't know. We all just live in this this world of a little bit of cognitive dissonance <laughs> and it's hard and it's scary. And also, even if I don't have children, I desperately want my friend's children to live full and happy and beautiful lives. Yeah. I don't want them to suffer under the choices that our generation and the generations before us made. It does go back, I think, to that feeling of like mutual aid yeah. and stressing a society in which we are all interconnected and other people's pain matters to all of us yeah in terms of the gun violence thing i don't know i literally just sign the petitions try to do what i can and otherwise not think about it because it's just too hard to think about yeah you can absolutely drive yourself yeah crazy and there's only so much that you can control yeah but i also just go back to the fact of like yeah if that's a reason that it makes you feel like that's not something you can handle. Like I think about it also on a selfish personal level. Can I handle having my heart outside of my body? Can I handle the stress of that? And I go back and forth. And so I think any reason is a valid reason to say, I actually don't want to have kids. Oh, 100%. Right. I, there's so, no bad reason not to have right. kids. Right. There's no bad reason. It's like so ending it's like a relationship. That, like exactly. if you don't want to do it, then don't, don't do, do it. it. I think if you want to do it anyway i think that's also fair that's also fair and i think that the two paths that i have dabbled in have been saying yes this is real and it's also a reason for me to be invested in making things better for my kids and also just not letting myself dwell on it all the time yeah because that's not very productive (laughs) yeah either or healthy for my brain so we also got some questions about deciding whether you want to try and have more children if you already have one. We got one question from a listener who said that she has one child and can't decide if she wants another. She goes back and forth every day. And someone else who asked, what should you do when you want another baby, but your partner is not totally on the same page and how to navigate that? And those are kind of different, but I do think that they are related because once you are in a partnership where you have a child with someone, then it is this like collective decision. Yeah. About whether you want to do it again. It's, I mean, and that's something every couple has to decide for themselves. I think a good rule of thumb is always having kids is a two yeses, one no sort of decision. If one Mm. of you really doesn't want another baby, I don't think you should have another baby. Partly just because it will put a huge amount of stress on the parenting relationship if one of you is not invested and wishes it hadn't happened. Maybe they're a soft no. Maybe they're like, I don't think it's a good idea, but if you really care about it, we can keep talking about it. But I think the ultimate decision is always going to be 
if someone decides they don't want to do it, I don't think it's healthy to push that through, which... Yeah, that's a good point. It's really hard. I mean, we're in this place, as we talked about last podcast, where I'm already wanting to decide if we're going to have one more. And it just is like deciding to have kids all over again in a way, right? You're like... yeah this will always haunt me like the ghost ship that sailed without me. If I don't have this baby, I'll never, I I imagine this baby. I thought I wanted it. I'll never meet this baby. This baby will never be real. My like 12th baby. I don't think about because I never thought I wanted 12 babies, but like the third (laughs) one that you're like, maybe I want begins to haunt you. You're like, if we went ahead with that, if my husband agreed, or if we both felt like it was a good decision, I would have this this one additional child. And what would that baby look like? And how much would I love that baby? But I think that like, it it does come back to the same logic, which is you just have to make the decision. Mm. And accept that there's no real way to have clarity around that there could be regret either way. Like I do know people who still cry thinking, about the third or fourth kid they never had. I also know people who are like, we had three and I regret it because it's too much. And you don't know until you do it. I think you can only think as hard as you can about what your life would look, taking both routes, making each decision, and go with the thing that you think contains the most possibility for fulfillment and joy and the less possibility for regret even if that difference is very small and just accept that like either there's there's no clear answer like I do know people you'll make list of reasons for why you should have another kid but those aren't like objective reasons you know like oh I want my kid to have a sibling okay well your kid doesn't have to have a sibling, you know? So if it's really important to you, that can be a list on the pro side, but it's not like an objective way to make that decision still, right? you know? There is no objective right answer to these questions, which is what yeah. makes them so difficult to navigate. And I think it's interesting, Claire, that I feel like you and Greg like had clarity on like having two kids. And so you haven't, and now you're suddenly in this place that like, yeah, is more similar to where I find myself on having kids at all yeah where it's like confusion yeah yeah it's very it's scary to suddenly be like oh I thought I you think you've like laid things out for yourself so that there's complete clarity and then you're like oh no we've stumbled into a place of confusion (laughs) yeah there's always going to be something that you don't have clarity on at a certain point you are just going to to leap on all of those things and yeah. yeah I think you can weigh the practical concerns finances time xyz but then it's just like yeah it's you just, just make the decision and a lot of things can just they can go both ways like oh I would love for my kids to have playmates at home but on the other hand you could say I would love to be able to just really focus on my one or two children that I have and not divide my focus you know like every element comes with sort of pros and cons and you just and that's just how have decisions work. Yeah, it's we're giving really I, useful. We're cutting through the clouds <laughs> for you guys today. But, I, but I, yeah, but I do think that there is an element of like that same Cheryl Strait advice. We're just look into your future. Mm-hmm. And is there one path that feels a, that is calling you a little bit more than the other? And not in a generalized regrets way, but in a like when you look back When you look ahead and you're 80, what do you want to have done? What do you think you will regret not having done? And which is 
which pulls more at you. And you just kind of have to make a calculated decision on any one of these things. And then you have to like accept accept your decision accept your decision like you can lean lean into the beauty of it that's a big part of it is to try to give yourself the confidence that you might feel if you had gone into it very clear you know you don't want to be in the thick of whatever decision you made and being like oh i should have made the other decision this would be different right now there is a huge amount of comfort in the middle of dealing with a newborn for example of being like i knew i wanted this i made this decision with confidence this is what I'm doing. Instead of being like, if I had chosen not to have this baby, I would be like on a beach in Aruba right now, enjoying my best life. You know, I think that a huge amount of comfort comes from being like fully committed to whatever decision you make, even if you feel a lot of confusion leading up to making that decision, just like commit. Yeah. Yes. I think that committing to any life decision we make is always smart. Yeah. Uh, and and I do often think, I mean, I obviously I have been unable to make this particular decision, but I do think in my lived experience, when I'm making a big decision, there's so much relief in just making the decision. Like so yeah. much relief comes just in that in the act. And so I think there's often more turmoil in the lead up. Yeah. Which is why I, I love just making a decision for myself. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) not going to think too hard about this decision. I'm just going to make it because once I get into the painful process of thinking about the decision, uh, that's not the fun part. The fun part is being like, I made the decision. It's over. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I like this question. What should you discuss with your partner to figure out if you're on the same page about division of childcare labor? Great question. Please enlighten me. Please enlighten me, Claire. (laughs) Well, I think that one thing that, that I always did was just talk a lot about how domestic labor tends to be gendered and fall to the woman in the household. And I was almost like pre-nagging. I was like, (laughs) you're not going to want to do this. No, it's super, super not necessarily the right approach for everyone. But, you know, just like trying to like raise his awareness in advance of like all the ways that the labor would tend to flow to me. I wanted him to know that I was aware of all that and that he should be aware of how that tends to happen and that we were going to be a team and not letting that happen. And that means things like talking about how like when the mother is breastfeeding in a heterosexual couple that, you know, the she tends to become the full default parent because, oh, the baby always needs her. And so how do we make sure that both parents still learn how to do everything for the baby. Does he think, does he plan to take parental leave to bond and help with the baby? Does he want to take some of that parental leave maybe when you're no longer on leave so that he is in charge of the baby solo? Like what does he see as his role in, in partnering with you on caring for the baby? And obviously those like gendered expectations are very different if you're in a partnership that is not heterosexual. But that is that is yeah, where these assumptions is... tend to be most likely to just happen, right? Yeah, they're is... the most noxious in that type of partnership. I think a lot of queer couples especially are accustomed to having more conversation around <laughs> dividing these kind of tasks. And in a lot of heterosexual like cis partnerships, there are just assumptions and those assumptions translate into realities you know like oh i just thought that you would be able to handle everything yourself because that's what women do 
And I thought my job would be when the kid is old enough to like learn to toss a baseball around. I'm going to be so helpful with the kids when they're old enough to play with. And I think it's really important to have the conversations with your partner beforehand that that are like every step of this is something we're doing together. And I know a lot of people really love the book Fair Play, which I haven't read. Oh, that's been on my list um, too. I hear it's great. Eve Rodsky to kind of get those conversations going with your partner about how you divide these things. But I think the most important thing is to just be talking about it and to be clear that what your expectations are, what your hopes are, like what you want to see from a co-parent, like what you think is good for your kids. And I think that always having that being an open line of communication in my marriage has been really important to making sure that we're both pulling our weight. And honestly, like Greg is like basically the default parent. (laughs) So he should be, he should be like, how do I get my co-parent to help more? But like he took leave and he was there every moment. Like he was, he was never thinking of his time off as like a vacation or like I get to go to the golf course now like there was an understanding because we had really discussed it that like we were doing this all together and I think that's really important yeah I was gonna say I think a huge part of that is like yes who Greg is but also that you made a point to be like these are conversations we have to have and these are discussions that we need to these are things that we need to be intentional about because I do think like we're all we all fall prey to gendered expectations we've been raised in this culture and so yeah if you don't if you just kind of let it happen you're likely to find yourself i think in a situation that feels less than equitable even if you have a partner who has no intention of setting things up that way right it's absolutely just- and i think one of the ways that i actually do see this play out is that in areas where I kind of enjoyed taking on the female domestic role where I was like, I'm an adult now. I live with my boyfriend. I'm going to cook dinner for him. I'm going to tidy up. Those are the hardest things to undo. And I think what often can happen is that if you've taken on more of that stuff, because it's not, you're like, it's easy enough. I cook, I clean, I can do a little bit more to compensate for my partner not being that into cleaning or not being that into cooking. None of that is going to get better when you have kids. You're, if you expect them to suddenly <laughs> step up in those arenas when you have kids, they absolutely will not. It all needs to be. So and at every point when you are just like making domestic labor unequal by taking things on to be like a good partner, you might be setting yourself up for trouble because once you have kids it's just going to be too much for you to do by yourself if you're both still working especially and that's when you see a lot of these conflicts rise where women are like oh yeah i did all this stuff before but now we have kids i'm also doing all the childcare he just expects me to do all this stuff i see this a lot on like working mom reddit where i like to hang <laughs> You've out really sometimes. gone down the and it's just there. like yeah it wasn't that bad to do all this stuff when we were childless and now we have kids it's a nightmare and i don't know how to get him to step up those conversations need to be ongoing about all the domestic work well before you have kids i think that's great advice next question do you have a timeline for kids like if not by age whatever 
no more kids or I'm not going to have kids? Obviously, this is a personal question. There's no right answer to this. I personally do have kind of a vague oh, really? timeline. A, a little bit. No, nothing hard and fast, but I just – I really want to make this decision for myself in the next couple years. I would like to – have a kid in my late 30s, like before 40, if yeah. possible. It's n- in no way a hard line. And I have close friends who had their first kid or their their one kid in their early 40s and are incredible parents and like never say never. But I just, I already feel my body starting to <laughs> break down in certain ways and I'm tired and there's just a certain point which for me like I don't want to be in those first days of doing this really difficult thing and because I am someone that also sees a lot of beauty in not having children I don't feel like it would be some huge massive loss to have a deadline and pass it and just be like this is my life and I'm gonna fill that time with lots of other things I think that's something that Sheila Hetty's character in motherhood writes about is that she like passes a certain age and she's like well that's the decision made for me I clearly that is off the table now and there can be a, a comfort in that also yeah I think that's it. That for me, it just feels like comfortable to just yeah. have a date where it's like, okay, that's – Yeah. If you're still hemming and hawing, then maybe you don't want this that much. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had a deadline for when I would start having kids. I wanted to start when I was 30. Didn't quite hit it, but that's – honestly, it's fine. And that was because I was worried that I would just keep deferring it if I didn't start. <laughs> I was like, I need to make myself start. And now I think I think I probably if if we haven't gone for number three by like 38, I think I would probably want to be done. I think having been in the baby stage throughout my 30s, I don't think I want to extend that into the 40s. You know, I'm like, (laughs) this is my decade of having babies. One is enough. (laughs) I also see people who are in their early 40s who already got past the baby stage or just never had children and can really enjoy their 40s. And so like, I am ready to really enjoy my 40s either way. Yeah. 40 is the new 25. It really is. Final question in this section. How do you manage stress around fertility? Obviously, big, big question. And I will say that neither of us have experienced any sort of extended infertility and so we're obviously not the ideal people to answer this question but I do think there is some amount of this no matter what mm-hmm. I felt this just being a person who like went in for the initial tests when I was thinking of freezing my eggs before we got laid off by BuzzFeed <laughs> and then it became more expensive <laughs> yeah and I literally started crying when they told me I had a follicle count on the low end of normal oh my god literally yeah that's burst into tears I burst into tears oh, and they were god. like it's probably your the fact that you have an IUD but like <laughs> If it can be the IUD, then like, what's even the point of the testing? Well, because they let you freeze your eggs yeah. with your IUD. So some people just have they their IUD doesn't suppress their follicle count, and there's a chance that mine yeah. isn't. But it's like, right. yeah, yeah. It, but my AMH levels were normal, so they were like, 
yeah. this could be what's happening. But whatever. It was this thing where <laughs> it was like, I don't even know if I want to freeze my eggs. I don't even know if I want to have a baby. And yet yeah. I feel like my body has failed a test. I didn't know yeah. that I was taking. And there is something just really stressful about that. I think especially for cisgender women in a culture where we're brought up thinking that this is like a thing that we should just be able to do. There is this just overwhelming pressure that as a cisgender woman, this is one of your main purposes, even though we don't subscribe to that on any level. Like, I don't think that that's true, (laughs) but there is Personal, ideological, philosophical, we don't subscribe. Exactly. We do not subscribe (laughs) to that, but it is something that's been just ingrained. Also, like, if you think there's a chance you want kids to have that option taken away... It's cruel. It feels cruel. Yeah. Even if you're not sure you do, you're like, oh, but I thought I had more time to decide. I thought I had the option. That's really scary. Yeah. I've seen family and friends go through infertility and and the stress and I really don't I don't know how you manage the stress around it 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 seems incredibly incredibly hard and I feel very lucky and privileged that that hasn't been a big part of my journey and I will say that there are like resources out there I think finding groups support groups can be really helpful and I think it's okay to just lean in to relationships with people who you feel like you can have honest conversations where they see you and they are responding to you in the way that you need. And yeah. like, you just need to take care of yourself and that's okay. Yeah. Also, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times, I mean, infertility is extremely painful and stressful. And also a lot of people go through it and do have families, you know, we always hope that everyone is able to to get through that and to have the life that fulfills them. Let's talk about some questions about non-parenthood. Do you think Uh, it's okay to not have a strong opinion about having kids? No, it's not okay. (laughs) Get yourself to get... No, it's fine. It's fine to not have a strong opinion. Yeah, I was like, this is an easy question because it's very clear that we think it is a-okay to not have a strong opinion and you should not feel bad about that. Absolutely. I think... At all. It's okay to not have a strong opinion and to have kids. I think it's okay to Mm -hmm. not have a strong opinion and to never end up having kids. Exactly. Again, I just think that the only important thing is you do have to like commit, commit to it. Like if you don't have a strong opinion about having kids, but then you end up having kids, you can't for the rest of your life be like, look at what I sacrificed to bring you into the world when I could have, you know, been an ambassador to Malaysia instead. (laughs) That sounds like really fun, actually being an ambassador to Genovia. No, like, yeah, you have to you have to do it without bitterness or like self doubt. But I think it's totally normal and fine to not just have a a lot of people have a lot of ambivalence about this and make decisions going both ways. And we should normalize that. I think ambivalence is fine. And I think a lot of people are ambivalent. And we've been sold this myth that innately as cisgender women, there is going to be something that is going to turn on in us and we're going to want to be pregnant and we're going to want to have a biological child and we're just going to want all these things. The reality is a lot more complicated. Some people do. Some people don't. It's yeah, also- just the whole range of human experience. Yeah. Like, it's always so fascinating to me when women especially are told, oh, you're one day you're just going to start wanting kids. And like, not that that never happens to anyone. I'm I imagine it happens to some people. But as someone who always wanted kids, 
I'm like, I assume that if you don't want kids, it probably is just how you feel. Like, if and I meet a 27 year old who's like, I don't think I want kids. My first thought is not, you'll wake up when you're 32 and you'll really want kids. It's like, oh, well, when I was 27, I knew I wanted kids. So we're different. Like, maybe that's not what you want. I just find it's like, yeah, I'm like, where does that myth come from? Because I think a lot of people never have that day when they wake up and they yeah. just know. It's just out there. It's just out there and it's coming for all of us. But yeah. we're all, as women, we're always just waiting for a sign that we should become yeah. vessels Let's for be childbirth. The, oh, God, I hate that. I hate that so much. Okay, next question. This one really resonated for me because it's something I think about a lot. A listener wrote, I don't want kids, but I worry about what this means for me when I'm 90. I could be lonely. And I think elder care is something that a lot of people are very fearful about when they think about making the decision not to have children because we do live in a very fucked up society that does not value older people. And yeah, there isn't a great social safety net. And so I totally get this fear and I also have this fear. I also don't want to make a decision about having a child in order to alleviate this fear because I also don't think that having kids is a guarantee that you're going to have someone who has the means or the time or the interest in like being at your bedside every day when you're 85. Like I, I just don't think there are guarantees in life and you can't really bring children into the world, which is not a choice that they've made. And, and act like that's a contract for them to do something for you right like we're not we're not birthing future caregivers for ourselves we're we're birthing children and of course we all hope that we will have a community around us when we're 85 when we're 90 but there are you know there are a lot of ways to 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 do that I do think one of the issues is not just elder care, but the fact that our society is very, tends to be very segmented by age. Like most of us do not know very many people who are in different age groups from us. Who aren't related to us. Who aren't related to us. And so, yes, maybe you have a lot of friends, but you get to be 90 and they've all died because they're all old. That's a real thing. Yeah, that is something that I see my, my last living grandparent experiencing. Like she is... And yeah. my partner's grandmother experiencing, where it's like all my friends. Yeah. My died. my grandmothers both lived to be quite old. They both died during the pandemic, not of COVID, but during the pandemic. And they were both very lonely at the end. And part of that was the pandemic. And part of it was that they built these social networks. And then because of old age, most of that social network begins to fall apart. And, and they did have children. And they did have children. Right? And their and children can, cared yeah. for them. And they were with their children, you know, as much as possible. My my one grandmother had four living children and the other had one living child at the end of their lives. And they were both, you know, cared for and loved by their children and grandchildren. But there is still loneliness that goes along with like living in this kind of atomized society that's segregated by age. And it's even harder when you don't have your own kids. But I I agree. I don't think that's a reason in itself to have kids if you don't want them. I don't think you're likely to raise kids who really want to be close to you at the end of your life if you didn't really want them to begin with. And I think that what we all need to be like trying to think more about is like, if we're afraid of being lonely when we're 90, what kind of life can we try to live 
where we are having those strong social connections with our peers, but also with younger people and older people that creates a more durable community. I think that's such a good point. And also, I will say, like, on a practical level, if you don't have children, it it is – you're probably going to have access to more money to put away for your care. That's true. When you're older. So there are just ways that you can, like, also – sort of set yourself up to make sure that you have some amount of resources and not not everyone obviously that is from a place of privilege but like they're just simply as money that you might make and not spend in the same way if you're not raising a child that's true that could that could provide some of that security that's not necessarily a cure for loneliness but like you said claire neither is having a child necessarily yeah and there there are simply no guarantees in this life i I also do think that, like, to me, it's more of a reason to think, like, maybe right now when I'm in my prime and I can, I have disposable income and I can do what I want with my life and enjoy myself, why would I want to encumber myself with, you know, babysitting my nieces and nephews? Why would I want to encumber myself with, like, with getting involved in my community when I have all this energy and money to spend on my own amusement. That's totally, that's your decision, right? We all have the freedom to make that decision. But if we're afraid of being alone when we're 90, which I very much am, we need to like, we need to invest in relationships with people outside of our pals who can go to brunch with us. You know, we need to invest in those community relationships by, by, putting into them as well, right? Like investing in people who are in the younger generations than us. And that's not easy, especially if you're not someone who loves being around kids. But I do think that it's part of like building those those ties so that when you're older, you have a community around you that is like, this person has been in my life. They care about me. I care about them. They're not my mom. They're not my dad, but they're part of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. How do you decide if not having kids is the right choice when societal norms ingrain the expectation that all women should want to have babies? I think this is kind of the same answer as how do you decide if it's the right choice to have a baby, right? It's, it is that exact same logic. I will also say that because that is the societal norm, if there is something in you saying, I don't want to have kids – that is actively already internally flouting that norm, then you should listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially if you are in a, a setting where you feel like you are getting a very uniform message to do one thing and you are resisting that, then that is very meaningful. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And you should you should stand strong in that and you should have confidence in, in that feeling and in that instinct because – yeah, that's it's yeah. just it's that's powerful and and also it's okay. Like it's yeah, more it's than okay. okay to to have that feeling and Absolutely. to make that choice. Like that that rules. You should make <laughs> any choice and feel good about it. 100%. Also like if you're in a, a space where you're like, "Oh, I just keep hearing that I should have kids. So how do I know if my desire to have kids is real?" I I think that like it's still valid to want something that is societally normal and I wouldn't drive yourself crazy about that either. Like I yes, just would I, I just wouldn't want to give too much weight to what you feel 
society expects. If, We're all tangled up yeah. in society. Yeah. We cannot really separate ourselves from it. So I think we just have to do what we can to like tune out the noise and get as much in touch with our actual internal instincts and desires yeah. as we can. And like that is easier said than done. Trust me, yeah. I know. But that's really all we can do. Yeah. Like if you're like, I should have kids because it's expected and but you just like are resisting it and you hate the thought of getting started you probably don't want to have kids if you're like i don't want to just be a baby maker like society expects and like i'm gonna not have kids but then you find yourself consistently like wishing you were having kids then maybe you just are someone who wants kids that's fine like yeah i just don't i i think that we all need to to not let society be in charge either way of these very personal decisions let's talk about pregnancy let's do it another experience i have not had but claire you have so one of our listeners wrote i'm early in my pregnancy but i am terrified of pregnancy and birth does it get better well probably when this was written this person was in the first trimester and is now they were probably in the third in the second i hope it's gotten better for you i think I'm not alone in finding the second trimester to be the best trimester. So I hope that there is a little relief being found. Does the fear get better? Or does the experience get better? Every pregnancy is different. Every birth is different. Some pregnancies are miserable from start to finish. Some are the worst at the beginning. Some are the worst at the end. Sometimes birth is terrible. Sometimes it's not so bad. But I will say that I was, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely terrified of pregnancy and birth. I still find it very weird sometimes and unsettling and uncomfortable. <laughs> Certainly, and that's I did allowed. Not. And that's, that's okay. I think that like there was some sort of verse empowerment for me and like choosing to do this thing that was very uncomfortable and scary for me. And finding that I could get through it and that I could tolerate it. I'm not someone who embraces a lot of risk or pain in most parts of my life, the way that, that some people might like choose to, to run an ultra marathon or something. I don't do that shit. Sounds terrible. <laughs> so I was like, this is, this is a way of, of testing myself by doing something that physically terrifies me. And lots of us get through it and are, even though we are terrified of it, you know, and it is a scary thing. Pregnancy is scary. Birth is scary. It's risky. It's absolutely valid to be scared. But, you know, you get the care, the best care you can. You take care of yourself. You listen to your body. And afterward, I did definitely feel a sense of pride and accomplishment that I had like faced that fear and come out the other side. And then you have a baby and you're like, now I don't even have time to think about how traumatized my body is because I'm traumatized by sleeping three hours out of every 24 and not consecutively. And it all just kind of fades into the background. So I personally best of luck. terrified of pregnancy <laughs> and birth. So it seems valid to me. It's scary. Next question. How bad is birth? <laughs> oh, my God. It is different for everyone. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I feel like I have friends who have had such vastly different experiences. And obviously, we know that the care that a cis white woman gets yes. in this country can be radically different from the care that a black cisgender woman 
gets. Yeah. And that is really fucking depressing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can be, it can definitely be quite dangerous. It can be very scary. It is much more risky for, for black women than white women in this country. I, I guess I can answer this yeah, also for from my personal experience. I, I feel like people are curious, just like level with us. Um, how bad. It is interesting, like how it was both as bad and not as bad as I expected. Like, I don't think I had a super easy labor. I did labor overnight without an epidural because I was hoping to do it naturally. Which was a terrible idea because I did not sleep all night. So I I was in so much pain. Really going for the epidural this time. Oh my God. Yes. I'm like, get it in immediately. Because like I didn't rest. I was awake all night. Greg was asleep, of course, because it was nighttime. And they were like, you're not going to be ready to push until tomorrow. But I'd had Pitocin, which makes your contraction stronger because my water had broken, but I hadn't started progressing enough so they gave me pitocin pitocin gives you crazy strong contraction so like every minute i was like violently contracting and like alone in the dark and it was not a super crunchy hospital so i thought i would be like moving around during the labor and all that like stuff that they show you from like midwife you know birthing doula dreams of how your labor will go i was lying on my back just like suffering so don't recommend that and then I ended get up pushing. Get the drugs is number one advice. Get the drugs. No, I mean, <laughs> do what feels do right what to Do what you want. Do what you want. What's right for your body, obviously. But yeah, then I ended up pushing like all afternoon, which I highly also do not recommend. Wasn't fun. I found out later that some other people only push for like 30 minutes. And I was like, are you serious? That was like all I did all day. It was not good. But it wasn't quite as... Like, it was very hard, but there's a lot of focus that goes into to giving birth mm-hmm. that, like, it's not some sort of, like, magical, poetic thing. Like, I think I had maybe dreamed, and it also isn't, like, a movie where, like, everyone's just screaming, and she's, like, screaming, and she's like, I hate you! Fuck you for doing this to me! And, like, ah! Like, I was, you're, you're, you're just, like, able to kind of channel a lot of that into trying to get the baby out, which was a different experience than than observing sure <laughs> an entertainment version of what giving birth is like so i would say it was both really really bad and painful and then i tore and needed stitches and like all that fun stuff not fun to recover from but it wasn't quite as just like pain focused i think as i expected there was okay there was a goal and like you're able to channel that and that made it better I don't know. I'm not as afraid this time around, maybe just because I know what to expect. You're like, I survived it once. I'll do it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's so different. It depends on your yeah. experience. And I know people who were like, I somehow had a ridiculously easy labor and other people who were like, it was horrifying. Also, like, I had certain things in my birth plan, but I also went into it, I think, with the sort of a sense of like, birth is chaotic yeah, I don't want to get too attached to a way that this should Goes. go in case it doesn't go that way. And I think that that allowed That's me smart. to metabolize certain things about it a little bit better. Like we did end up needing forceps to get him out. Like 
there was a really chaotic end to the whole thing. Like, I'm like, it wasn't that chaotic. It was pretty chaotic at the end. Like, 15 people rushed in, like, forceps coming out. They're like, now or never. Like, it was really kind of great. Like, we were that close to a C-section. And I think that it helped me, even though I was, like, sobbing at the time. I I think... Where it's I'm just like, like, it wasn't that bad. Be- so this is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, like I was this, like, and, and there we're going to get this baby so out. You can control. I'm not going to like, I'm not going to be too attached to the idea of like the beautiful moment where I pull the baby out myself and like, it's so easy and smooth. I, I also just like part of me, and again, I've never experienced this, but part of me does just feel like there is like an element of talking to women like we're stupid and trying to scam us to be yeah. like, this is the most beautiful experience of your life. It's, who was saying to me? I think we need to rebrand pregnancy because it's super metal. That was Kelsey. Yes. Kelsey it was McKinney. Our, we were having this conversation. Kelsey McKinney. We were, I, this was back, must have been backstage at our live show. Yeah. And we were discussing this and I was, we were all like, yes, so true. Like this is not some beautiful flowery experience. Like this is metal as fuck. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's like alien. Like that is just literally what women do and birthing people do and I am obsessed with this because I really hate the whole like miracle the like the miracle Madonna ass like miracle of life the baby thing but I'm like at the same time this is a pretty like fucking legit thing that my body it's can do fucking wild no it's fucking wild but I think there is just the whole scam of making women feel like everything about us is demure yeah. and soft and it's like no so much of this is wild and crazy and chaotic and intense and physically really difficult men and can't do anything like, like this shit if men take a really huge crap they act the way that i think women should act about giving birth like, they're like <laughs> look at that shit i made it's so big i can't believe i pushed that out i don't spend oh, i men are have weird you seen, about have you seen get movements. on your knees no the Jacqueline Novak no. show. But a lot of the, it's a great show about sort of an intellectualization and a philosophy comedy show about blowjobs. Yeah. It's incredible. I was just at live taping. I think it's going to come out on like Netflix or Mac. I'm so excited. Everyone to should, finally should watch see it. it. It's so good. But a big part of it is her talking about like the branding of the way we talk about penises versus vaginas and like what that, the yeah. way that we talk about it. She's like, you know, we talk about men's genitalia as like rock hard. And she's like, I've, it's not a rock. Like, that's just not what a rock is. Yeah. And she goes like deeply into it. It's a PR problem for a lot yeah. of this stuff. No, it's so true. Men shoot a little bit of liquid out of their penis and they're like, oh, yeah, metal. And yeah, they're like, I pushed an it's entire like bloody child out of my vagina. Yeah. yeah and you're like, exactly. oh, it's so beautiful. The miracle it's of so soft and gorgeous. So soft. The miracle. You should just enjoy every moment of it. You're a little woman. No, no. Bullshit. We have a PR problem. <laughs> we need to rebrand. I think this is, yeah, yeah. that's a good conclusion to this I prefer to think section. of it as an incredible physical challenge that I have mastered, like, climbing Mount Everest, and that's what I'm sticking with. I mean, frankly, yes. <laughs> Should we move on to the money section, which I suspect we will only get partway through, and we'll have to save some of this for a yeah. part two? Let's, let's, let's try to get into it. I think we have some good questions to cover here. We have some great questions. First question is for Claire. 
Claire, I'm curious about your childcare and maternity leave situation going from <laughs> one to two kids. Me too. Oh boy. Um, Can't wait to find out what's going to happen. But yeah, I mean, this is definitely something and this yeah. is something that like very oddly involved both of us because we have a company of two. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And it was something that was important to us and that we did write into our contract with each other. Yeah. From like day one, 16 weeks of maternity leave. We did write in maternity leave and or book leave. So we wrote in multiple I plan kinds of to leave. have three children and then write a bunch of books. And Emma, oh, I love that for you. This is your <laughs> business now. No, I... Yes, we we wrote in leave. That was something we we hashed out at the very outset of going and of going independent and that still leaves certain complications, right? Like we yeah. have to we have to pay for someone to replace me while I'm out and that Yeah, we don't we don't have we don't have the assistance that you would have in a corporate setting and also yeah. or like in a country where they just the government would pay you your salary and then yeah i'm curious how that works have... if you work for yourself in another country yeah i'm not totally sure but i would imagine that there yeah. would be like a world in which you would just get paid out your salary and the company would have that money to play with in yeah. order to replace your labor and instead it's it comes out of our budget so that was right. all stuff that we had to work out with each other yeah. Paying for paying for a replacement co-host, the wonderful Lee Blickley, who will be starting on Love to See It when I go out. Yes. And in terms of childcare, we did something really brilliant, I think. We waited until Max was going to be old enough to start public pre-K. And so Max is starting public school in the fall. And we're just going to switch a new kid right on into daycare and yes. not have to pay two daycare tuitions at the same wow. time. Frankly, that's wonderful. Look at that. Government programs really yeah. working. And there's it's like... It's almost like public oh education God. has a value. It's so and weird. they have aftercare that's like $100 a month. Wait, really? That's I amazing. Know. I'm like, that is less than what we pay for extended hours, which is any. Any time that you want to leave your kid in our daycare after 4.30 is considered extended hours. So, like, if you have anything <laughs> resembling a full-time job. job. Yeah. Yeah. So that is more per month than aftercare at public school. So we're going to – we're signing Max up for that. Very excited to join the public school community. And and we're going to put the, the new little in daycare. I think I'm definitely going to – Try to take advantage of our flexibility so that I don't have to have him in daycare nine hour days right at the beginning because Max didn't start daycare until he was 11 months old. And I am a little freaked out about putting a four month old in full time daycare because yeah, they still he, are Max so Max was tiny. a COVID baby. Like he was yeah, going to yeah. start daycare. The daycares were closed at right around the time that he was going right. to start. And then we moved. And honestly, I think. We just were so scared to put him in daycare. We waited until we were like, we literally can't do this anymore. Like he was, he needed so much from us in terms of interaction and he was moving around and monitoring and we were both working full time as well. That's and we were like, work. we were both like on the brink of full mental collapse. And we finally put him <laughs> in daycare. And I'm like, this time we're not going to do the full mental collapse thing. But we're going to try to balance that with not having him in daycare 
nine hour days when he's so little and we're going to try to ramp up the daycare a little bit but very glad that that max is going to be in public school because yeah yay we love, <laughs> we love that, love, that, we that love honestly it. is is so great and there's a sub question here like thoughts on child care options like nanny versus nanny share versus daycare and i feel like like in brooklyn i know people who do all of these things yeah. and it's sort of just like what works for your schedule what can you afford daycare can be really expensive like in in brooklyn for example yeah. and so i know one of my closest friends ended up getting a nanny because the cost was just simply not much different and yeah especially during like the height of covid like daycare was just getting canceled a lot especially I, during I mean, covid yeah. you've also got to be thinking like less exposure to illnesses right yeah i also um, will say like in a city doing a nanny or nanny share your child is going to be less isolated because the n- nanny can like take the baby out to the park and sit with a bunch of other kids right like so there's yeah less isolation than i think like in the suburbs yeah that might be also a calculus of like but you then daycare is a socialized. lot cheaper in the suburbs right also true right also yeah exactly i, I do think they're there is a huge advantage to daycare in terms of the socialization. Max's went into daycare having barely ever spent any time around anyone but us most of his <laughs> life. True. And hope it's wild. And now he's like, you know, it, he he was able to very quickly get used to like socializing with other kids, learning appropriate ways of interacting with his peers. That doesn't mean that they're never issues for example just the other day apparently he was like hitting all of his friends and really he's never done this before we don't know where this came from but you know it's it's really gratifying to see him at the park with his friends that he made a daycare and really cute yeah like we couldn't give him that by keeping him by yourselves at home all the time like we were initially i will say that the people that we know that really need consistent daycare and have plenty of resources have both which is terrifying because daycare might close or they might not let your kid come in because your kid is sick and a lot of nannies will take care of sick children to some you know as long as it's not something too contagious so a lot of them have combined care so but you know because with the nanny also maybe they have their own they go on vacation you know they they get sick and so you don't have like a full daycare staff covering yeah i also i also know people who do like you know, they have flexible schedules, so they decide what makes sense is just having a part-time nanny for certain days a week when they yeah. need to get a lot of work done. And then, like, the two parents are taking on yeah. the child care on the other days. I think it's just, like, there's not really a right answer. And unfortunately, all of these things can be prohibitively expensive. Yeah, um, absolutely. Especially yeah. depending on where you are. daycare in a city like brooklyn is wildly expensive but so is also cost of living for like a nanny so nannies can't exactly charge you peanuts they all have they they all have their own pros and cons i would say that having a nanny or a nanny share does allow you to like keep them in a little bit more of a bubble if you're worried about your kids like getting exposed to lots of illnesses that sort of thing daycare max has an incredible immune system now and he has lots of friends so 
we feel good about that. It also yeah, is a very cheaper option for us. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard decision, but often one that is made for you by what is literally more affordable in your area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> just <laughs> plain limitations there. Someone else asked Claire, like, what labor, if anything else, do you outsource? And this person acknowledged this is a very privileged thing. Yeah, we are very privileged in the resources that we have. We are able to have him in full-time daycare. In theory, both of us have flexible enough jobs that we could have him in daycare that was less full coverage, but we're able to have him in daily daycare and to have all that time to, to focus on our work, which is really nice for us. I also do... We have like a once a month cleaner come because I was having a hard time keeping up with like cleaning. Like I, I, we pick up, we put things away. I run the vacuum a little bit. I wipe down the counters, but I was like, things are just getting gross. There's a, a deep cleaning. That yeah. is. And I hate spending a, like ha- I, I was having to like, oh, it's Saturday. Like take Max to the park while I deep clean the apartment. And I was like, I don't really want to miss out on my weekends with my son. We have the money to pay for an occasional cleaner to like get things back to a reset. And so we do that like once a month. And then in between, we maintain it as best we can. It's to me. Yeah, I always wonder, like, I feel like it's going to become as kids get older, the daycare options do get less full coverage. Like, There's so many school breaks and, you know, early dismissals and aftercare is not always available. And that's something I've never ventured into that I see a lot of people doing is like a a child minder for like, or like a mother's helper to like, pick up your kids for you and like Mm. prep dinner or something. And I'm just like afraid to even venture into that (laughs) arena because it just seems like... It would be like incredibly helpful, but just, oh God, the thought of the thought of like being someone's direct boss also stresses me out, which was another factor of hiring a nanny. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I don't really want to be the the person who is just someone's boss. But uh, yeah, we those are that's the only thing we we really do. So we're getting close to the point where we're going to need to wrap up. So let's tackle like one more area of questions before we go. We got a handful of questions about this, about what are the pros and cons of having kids in a city like New York? And if you're not going to be in the city, where do you live? How do you decide to parent in, for example, like Brooklyn or Jersey City versus the suburbs or a lower cost city? And how does living in an expensive area factor into your decisions about having children? And I thought these were such great questions because this is something I know that both of us think a lot about and have been weighing. For me, I can say that my number one or very close to my number one priority is to not leave New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs. I really don't want to live in the suburbs. I feel very strongly about that. My partner and I are aligned on that desire. We both grew up in the suburbs. And this is not a knock on anyone who lives in the suburbs, just like for us, that's it's a big priority. And so that is a huge factor for me on why I feel like having one child would be the right choice if if I decide to have children at all. Yeah. Because I feel like that would allow me to still live in the place that I 
want to live in and not have as much financial stress. But yeah, there's kind of no right answer. I actually think that when I really think about it, living in an expensive area is probably the one real factor that is keeping me from just saying we're gonna I want to have three kids. Like I think that if I lived in a low cost of living area, there would be enough weighing on the side of I would rather do this one more time. But then I think about, you know, living in the New York City area and having three kids and neither of us is an investment banker. And like, what am I thinking? You know, that is the one thing that really tends to rattle me about going for it on that front. You know, out of all of my cousins, you know, my aunts and uncles, the only family, my dad had four siblings. (laughs) So a lot of families my parents were the only ones with three kids and they were also the only ones who lived in Indiana instead of (laughs) Chicago area or New Jersey. So, you know, I, I see that that might have made it seem much more feasible for them than it was for my dad's brothers and sister and my mom's brother, which is kind of sad to think about. Like, I don't want that to be the deciding factor, but yeah, I also don't want to like move away too far and it's not like the jersey suburbs are like so So cheap (laughs) but yeah the decision to parent in the city versus the burbs versus lower cost city for us is being made it's in the process of being made all the time like we haven't decided i think we can't necessarily just move too far away because of greg's work he's a little bit more geographically bound than i am Also, his family lives nearby. Some of my family lives nearby. So we don't really want to move to like Columbus, Ohio or something. But the Burbs is an ever-present question. A lot of our friends in Jersey City, as they're having their second kids, are moving into the suburbs. So I have I also have friends who are, you know, as they start to have kids leaving Brooklyn for Westchester or Long Island. Or, yeah, friends who are weighing whether or not to have a second kid and that that may determine where they are geographically long term. And I think that the truth is there are pros and cons either way. Like when I think about having one kid and the fear of is that child can be isolated without a sibling. And I think, you know, a lot of the only child anxiety is sort of weird and wrapped up in things that may not be true. But if you're in a city where your kid can have non-blood related cousins essentially who are walking distance away and you're interacting with other families and with adults and there is this like full social life that becomes I think much more easily accessible than if you are physically isolated from people like I go back to that Atlantic article from a few months ago about the value of living near your friends one of my best friends who lives like a 10 minute walk away from me she had a baby and her kid is now more than a year old but there was something really nice about when she was on leave and feeling isolated that she could like go on a walk and text me and be like do you want to just hop down and meet me all of that becomes much easier yeah I think that the value of living close to people is huge for me I yeah it was hard to decide to move out of Brooklyn a big reason we did it is because daycare was expensive yeah and even in jersey city it was it was much more attainable for us but i love living near people i hate feeling like i'm separated from people by 
a car ride. I I've yes, never the liked car that. thing. The yeah. car thing is what's really hard for me. Like I like to yeah. live as car free of an existence as possible. And in the summer, especially, I I love living in the city. I love going to the park, and it's full of kids that we've seen before because <laughs> we all use the same parks as like our backyard right like we're all out there all summer and it makes it easier to like build a community I think and to build this sense of like where I am is enough for me is sufficient I don't always have to be like driving somewhere I can walk to the grocery store I can walk to the pediatrician I can I can walk to the homes of my friends of my son's friends and There is also, you know, a lot of, I mean, I grew up in a university town, so I know there are a lot of places, a a lot of places that have, like, cultural opportunities as well, but New York is one of those places. There are a lot of things to take your kids to do and see, and I love that. I will say that, like, the older he gets, the harder it is (laughs) to live in an apartment. Not, not because of the space but because i hate feeling like he is bothering our neighbors at who are the nicest people we have never gotten a complaint but he's so full of energy and he's running around and like yelling and wanting to drum on things and i'm like do i spend my children's lives telling them to be quiet or stop running or do or, i just get a backyard <laughs> or yeah or do i get a backyard right it's literally just like my anxiety about the neighbors at this point like i feel guilty that they have to like hear my kid being rowdy and I completely understand the value of just like being in a place where you have more space and something I think about in New York City is like the craziness over the school system and obviously that can be a lot easier in the suburbs and so to me that's like the most for me personally that's like the most compelling reason to to move out of the city but it's 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 hard to if we only had one kid or if we only planned to have one i might have we we probably we might have found a way to stay in brooklyn honestly like because it is it's so hard to give up yeah that proximity to to things you love and yeah people you love exactly and that for me is just that's to me the most important thing and I just like I love living in a city I've always been a city person since I was extremely young and so I just I think something that I worry about in becoming a parent is that all of your desires and dreams will become subsumed by the needs of your children and so who will grow up to be like i hate the suburbs why did you bring me here (laughs) right you're like i did it for you for you (laughs) and so i think that my guard against that in my mind when i'm making the decision is like that's a hard line for me because i know that i value this and i want this so i don't want to set myself up in a way that like i can't have this yeah and so let's make that hard line before i make that decision yeah Whereas I'm, like, over here, like, literally, I will, like, go to Greg crying at, like, 11 p.m. And he's like, oh, my God, what now? And I'm like, we can stay in the city 
or we can have a third kid. And like, I just don't know how to make that decision. I want them both so much. And he's like, oh my God, like we literally haven't had the second kid yet. You need <laughs> yeah, to you calm down. Yeah, you're going to feel. <laughs> the the, Jer- the Jersey Burbs housing market is insane right now. Like this yeah, is like, a decision not... we can safely push off for a little bit longer. Yeah, and I'm like, like sobbing. Pumped. I'm like, we need to know. <laughs> which thing i desperately want we're going to choose yeah it's oh the joy of the joy of making decisions yeah decisions are hard (laughs) i think that's the overwhelming theme of these episodes it's just going to be like decisions are hard and there's no right ones (laughs) we look forward to answering so many questions with well there's really no right answer we don't know how to give advice (laughs) and we have so much respect for people who are really good at giving advice (laughs) so i think we're gonna wrap up here in our next our next installment of these questions will finish up the money section. We have questions about friendship, about selfhood in parenthood, and then a handful of really what I think are really fun, just straight up like advice questions from listeners. So we will get to that in a part two, maybe a part three, depending on how long winded we are. But for today, that is it for this episode of Rich Text. Rich Text is hosted, produced, and edited by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray. You can find the written version of Rich Text at clarentemma.substack.com. You can find us on Instagram at clarentemmapod, and you can find our other podcasts, love to see it, over at Stitcher and wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on TikTok and Twitter at love to see it pod. You can also find us individually on social media at Claire E. Fallon and at Emma Lady Rose. We'll be back soon. 